BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. It happened all at once. My brother and I sitting naked in the bath, playing with our toy boats, listening to the music and the sound of muffled voices from the next room. We are swaddled in red and green wool blankets and readied for sleep. Story time, pajamas, the rubbing of tired eyes. Good night canyon, good night mountain, good night building, good night stars. Crayons are put away, cubbies clean, teeth brushed. I drift to sleep and I'm rattled awake, surprised to see my mother's face with her shaved head, her hazel green eyes, her round Dutch cheeks and crooked yellow coffee stained teeth. Hi Goo, wake up, we have to leave. It's not safe here. That's Mikkel Jolet, musician, frontman of the indie rock band, Airborne Toxic Event, and author of the recent memoir, Hollywood Park. Mikkel's is a story about trauma and resilience, the scars that remain, and the ones healed by time, hard work, and an extraordinary human spirit determined to survive, thrive, and grow strong against all odds. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I was born uh, in a place called Sinanon, which was a, a, what I understood as as a child, I was told it was a commune. Uh, We now understand it was a cult. I was born inside the orphanage uh, that existed in that cult. It's funny, because I, like, we talk about family secrets here, right? And like, one of the secrets of my family was that this was abusive <laughs> uh, and not something that was ever explained to us because uh, we were told we were put into this school. And what, what happened was the, the leader of the cult decided that uh, rather than be uh, the children of your parents, everyone would be the children of the society. So there was like a six month period. You were kind of like, you were born and then you could be with your mom and breastfeed and all that kind of stuff in a place called the hatchery. Uh, there's these wonderful 1970s, 60s Orwellian terms. <laughs> so he went from the hatchery to the school. 
And then in the school, you were raised apart from your parents and not like day to day. Like, I mean, you wouldn't you'd see your parents for a couple hours, maybe every few weeks, once a month. Some kids went years. And it was, uh, it was a tough place to grow up because essentially what they created, and I don't think they chose to create this on purpose, but they created, you know, an, an orphanage. We were raised by uh, people we didn't know. We were handed off from different people months, years of our lives where we don't, we don't really know who raised us. And Synodon was a place people went to get clean off of heroin or alcoholism, I guess, to some extent, but mostly heroin. And so people were like two, three weeks off kicking heroin and then suddenly thrust into the school in some role or another. How many kids, more or less, were in the school during the time that you were there? Yeah, I think all told there was maybe 400 kids mm -hmm. that came through. Mm -hmm. um, and at any given moment, I think at, at its height, maybe 100 to 150 was the most ever at one time. We were raised uh, just to believe that the, the society was our parent. And I think that the thinking was um, in this kind of like backwards culty 1970s kind of way of thinking was that like, well, this way the parents won't pass off, you know, their cycles of violence and trauma and addiction to their kids. But of course, it just meant we were orphans. <laughs> it just meant that we didn't have basic people who loved us and took care of us. I mean, there was no birthday celebrations. There was no Christmas or Hanukkah or anything like that. Certainly no extended family. And your brother, Tony, was also... Yeah, he's three years older. I was in the lower school. He was in the upper school. I think the upper school was a lot rougher um, than the lower school. I think that's where they were particularly lax about who interacted with the kids and what the interaction and supervision of the children were. And I mean, every kid was abused. Every kid was beaten. Every kid was humiliated. Just about every kid was molested. I mean, you name it. So we escaped when I was very young, and uh, we, we did have to escape, and this woman showed up. So we're, we're in this, like, world of everyone has shaved heads and overalls and boots, and, you know, uh, one day this woman shows up who we, we understand is our mom, but we don't, the, the term doesn't have much particular meaning to us because we don't really know what a mom is, right? Um, Do you understand each other to be brothers? Yeah, I think we did, but we didn't really know what it meant. You know, we just knew we were brothers, and... Um, I think it was just kind of this vague term, just like mom was or dad was. We didn't really know what any of these terms meant because there was no sort of traditional family structure. So one day she shows up and she says, all right, it's not safe here and we have to leave because the place had started to practice violence, which, you know, it started as a nonviolent place. And we left. Uh, we kind of escaped in the early morning uh, into a car where my grandfather was waiting. From there, you know, it was, it was just so, so odd. <laughs> We'd never seen a skyscraper before we'd never been in a restaurant before we didn't know what a, you know we, we went from there we were in uh, Marin County went from there to uh, Oakland well to San Jose and then to Berkeley and Oakland and just like I'd never seen any of these things before and it was it was just such a bizarre world to the world just seemed so big we'd been on this dirt road <laughs> leading to the compound and we'd gone into town before I guess there's a town uh, in Tomales Bay nearby the compound where we were and that was about that was the big city for us it was like a main street with one stop with one stoplight uh, and then all the kids all of us were just you know with shaved heads and overalls and all the towny kids staring at us because i think we probably look like weird culty kids which i suppose we were um, but you know it wasn't our choice it was our parents choice <laughs> so i think it was always just kind of confusing for us mikhail ends up living with his grandmother and grandfather people he had never met before. They were very well off. Uh, my, my mom had been raised in The Hague in Holland, and 
you know, raised by nannies and my grandfather owned a shipping company and they were a well-to-do family. And she was like, you know, the hippie that sort of defied all expectations and rebelled against the the society that they'd raised her among. I think she was kind of uh, angry and a bit of a utopian and probably just kind of a damaged kid because also my grandmother was just a raging drunk. Just I don't I don't know if I'd ever seen her sober in my whole life. She was always drunk by like 11 a.m. And of course, resented that her daughter had become, you know, this hippie. She had been a free speech uh, activist at Berkeley and then eventually ended up in this utopian cult. So there was a lot of tension uh, over that. And, you know, at the time also we were living on the run. Like we we were told that the men, the bad men from Synanon were coming to get us. The society thought that she had kidnapped us because we weren't her kids, we were Synanon's kids. And so they were. we were always on the lookout and we were never allowed to play outside because who knew if these, these bad men were going to come and take us away. Mikkel's family is not alone in their escape from Synanon. His mom's friend, Phil Ritter, a free speech activist and anti-nuclear activist, has also escaped. And after a short while staying with his grandparents, Mikkel, his mom, and brother relocate to live with Phil in his apartment in East Oakland. One day, the apartment is broken into. They're not sure if it was the bad men of Synanon who did it, but they are scared, and they decide to move together to a house in Berkeley. Phil, he had a a daughter uh, that lived with us as well. And we all moved into this house. And again, we weren't allowed to go outside. And uh, he had built a little playroom for us in the garage. And I wouldn't say he was quite a father figure, but he was he was a good guy. You know, he was he was kind to the kids and a nice human being and um, just like the gentlest soul you'd ever meet. We'd spent a lot of time playing indoors and listening for the kids on the street as they played, which is kind of heartbreaking. <laughs> we knew who the kids were by like the sound of their bikes or what game they were playing. And we meanwhile, we're like locked in this garage. Um, so one day, I guess my brother had rebelled. He's like, I'm going to go outside no matter what. And he was he was playing with the kids across the street. It was like one of the rare days he actually got out. And I was on the porch. And Phil had gone to get some groceries um, in his uh, van. He had a VW bus like any good hippie. And he came back, and I was on the porch. Uh, and he closed the door to his van, and there was these two kind of shadowy figures that came up behind him, and there were these two men, and they had these like flesh-colored masks on, you know, like nylon, like the way bank robbers have over their faces. And it all happened so quickly. I was just like, who are those guys? And it was almost like, is it Halloween? Are they playing dress-up? I think it might have been my first thought or something. And one of them uh, hit him over the back, and he fell on the ground. Uh, and then they just started beating them. Uh, they had these two, they had clubs in their hands. They weren't like baseball bats. They were like police clubs, batons kind of thing, maybe a little bit bigger. And he started screaming uh, and bleeding. And I hid, I hid behind uh, the column on the porch as they just wailed on him uh, in the driveway. And they straightened up and said, you know, where's Mikel and Tony? And then Tony was with all the kids because all the neighborhood kids had sort of come to watch. And uh, he was across the street, but none of the kids knew our names. <laughs> because we were just always hiding in the garage. So nobody said anything. And eventually, you know, a neighbor lady came out and told her, uh, told him to leave and that she'd called the police and, and they left. Uh, and then the ambulance came and they took Phil away and uh, he was in a coma for about a month. And it was weird. I remember just like catching like eyes with him. He had this real sort of kind face. And before he passed out, like I was kind of peering out from behind this column and I could see his eyes and they were looking at me. And I remember the expression on his face because there was, there was like a stillness to it after he sort of stopped screaming and just kind of resigned to it, I guess. And, and he told me later that 
All he was thinking about at the time was that this is too much for a kid Mikel's age to witness. Like, what a good guy, right? I mean, the thing that he was concerned about was, was as he's being beaten nearly to death, was he didn't want me to have to see all this violence. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that really strikes me about your story is that this group of adults in your life that includes both your parents and the various people who came in and out of your life. I mean, there were some doozies, but it also had some very kind people who probably are a large part of why we're even having this conversation and, you know, why you ended up in one piece. Yeah. As if I saw a tweet the other day, somebody said, I'd never join a cult. <laughs> and I, I wanted to write him back like, no shit, nobody thinks they're joining mm, a cult. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, nobody, you, you, people in cults don't know they're in cults. And my parents thought they were in a nonviolent drug rehabilitation society, which is kind of how it started. It was just trying to get addicts clean. And it did a pretty good job of doing that. It saved a lot of people's lives first. And then, you know, but then you isolate people and you start getting groupthink going. And then it, uh, there's kind of like this quirk of human psychology that they tend to line up behind very often a narcissistic and abusive man or whatever. And that's what happened in our case. And it's not as if these people are all trying to do mean things. And, I, and definitely, you know, I have a difficult relationship with my mom. She, you know, some ways in which I think she maybe wasn't prepared to be a mother, but I don't think she heard, meant any harm to us. And she, in her heart, wanted what was best for us. And certainly my dad did. And, you know, they, I, they, they meant well for us. They just didn't know, you know. And looking back with hindsight, it's very easy to pinpoint mistakes. I don't think they they were trying to do anything bad, particularly to the kids. After the incident of Phil's beating, Mikkel's mom decides to move her kids from this environment, too. Once again, they're on the run. She gets a job at the state mental hospital in Salem, Oregon. So that's where they'll flee and hide next. I remember when we left and we packed up the old white Vega that she'd gotten uh, from my grandfather and we packed and head to Oregon. I remember it was a rainy day and it was just this feeling in the air like, man, we lost. Like I knew it even at that age. I knew like, man, Reagan was president, <laughs> who was like the old nemesis for my mom's free speech days at University of California. And like, man, the hippies just lost. The cult had devolved into violence and then we were feel again beaten and everything had just kind of fallen apart and so it's like we went to Salem Oregon to, to hide that was the feeling I knew it then we were going to hide we're going to get on the other side of the mountains to this other part of the world and we're going to be safe from all this um, all this madness it's a pretty hard scrabble existence for the family in Salem Mikkel and Tony are left on their own a lot and there's never enough to eat on the morning of Mikkel's sixth birthday when he wakes up his dad is sitting on the edge of his bed so I'd always been told about my dad that, you know, he was, uh, he left us for a tramp. That was the line I'd always heard my mom. Like, he, dad left us for a tramp because I guess he'd remarried uh, fairly quickly after uh, he and my mom got divorced. And, you know, I'd always been told what a selfish person he was or how he wasn't there for us or how he'd left us, which is never how I felt about him. You know, we would see him when we were in Synanon. He was just the warmest guy and the kindest guy and just this one of these guys that when you're around him, you just feel good. And, you know, we were latchkey kids with a single mom in Salem, Oregon, and it's tough to be a single mom anyway, but we were broke. I mean, we were living on powdered eggs and government cheese, and we would wait in the uh, food line at the church, at the food bank. We were on food stamps and just, just had no no money or anything. And then, you know, when you're the child of a, of a single mom, particularly if you're a boy, you live in this like hall of mirrors where there's like, everyone says, well, you're the man of the house. As if it's this good thing. And you're like six. 
You know, <laughs> you're like, oh, cool. I'm not ready for that at all. <laughs> thanks for thanks for letting me know. And I think there's this like maternal fantasy of like who you're going to become. Like, are you going to become one of these bad men who leave, or are you going to become like one of these good men who are going to stick around? And I, I always remember getting that up so much. It was kind of heavy for my mom. It's probably more than you know. It was really appropriate. But, you know, we were always around women. So we knew the world of women really well. We could hear my mom talking to her friends about, like, she's just trying to date someone, just trying to find a good man, just trying to have a man around, just hope this one works out, hope this guy's good. And then, of course, my father who left was the love of her life. And we knew the, the world of tears and vulnerability and trying to make ends meet. And every son, daughter, two of a single mother knows this world, right? And that's where we were. And then here comes our dad. And our dad is like the most masculine, funny guy. And he'd flown up from Los Angeles for one day for my sixth birthday. And it was just like magic. It was like, oh my God, here's this tall guy. I could walk down the street next to him. And it just felt like having your own private God. Like it was just like, I've got a Zeus. And it's a, it's a dad. And there was a lot of single mothers and a lot of latchkey kids on our street. And it was just like the kids that would like bully us and make fun of us, whatever, was sort of like... <laughs> like slink down a little bit like hello sir because we had a dad and he could like throw a baseball across the entire you know baseball field or he could eat a whole pizza or whatever and he could swear and he was so good at swearing and didn't care about swearing in front of us and this was just like mind-blowing to us because we just never we'd never been around men we just knew the world of women and and you know you as a boy you're like am i going to become one of those things is that what i'm going to be and which kind of am i going to become yeah, it was very touching the way that you write about studying him, trying to memorize him, like, trying to memorize his mustache and memorize his, you know, like the width of his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. he had a walk. He had like a dip to his walk. You know, he was kind of a beatnik. He wasn't quite a hippie. He was a little older than that, you know. But he, he'd been in jail and out of jail, been a professional criminal for a while. But he could dance, you know what I mean? You know, he had a swagger to him, and I'd, I'd never seen anything like this before. And he'd sit down and, and he'd say these words, and he'd be like, that asshole Reagan. Like, he, he never, I never heard of Reagan referred to anything other than that asshole. Like, I thought Reagan's first name was that asshole, so I was like 12 years old. <laughs> like, it was just always that asshole Reagan, that son of a bitch Nixon, that fucking carburetor. Like, I remember him talking about his old truck, and I didn't even know what a carburetor was. I just would nod my head, be like, that's right, Dad, it's the fucking carburetor. That's your fucking problem. And that's the word. And then suddenly <laughs> that's the word for carburetor. <laughs> right, right. And I would make it up because, you know, you're just trying to make up the man you think you're going to become at that age. So I'd be like, yeah, listen, Mom, something's wrong with my skateboard. I think it's the fucking carburetor. <laughs> but, you know, you're just inventing. It's trying to imagine the men we're going to become as we, we kind of invent them from pieces of the men we have around us. And that first, the first visit from your dad was, it was 24 hours and then he was gone. You woke up the next morning and he was gone and you, and you knew he was going to be gone. So you were, you were trying to almost sort of imprint, you know, like a duckling imprints, you know, sort of as much of him on you as you possibly could. Well, also the other piece of it, he was a warm, sunny guy. He was, he's fun to be around, you know, his whole life. Warm guy, quick with a joke, quick with a smile, very empathetic, listens, understands. And my mom, not a bad person or anything, but just like crippling depression. And so she was always in her room. She was always reading. She was always sad. She was always crying. It was always like we had to take care of her. And with my dad, we could just be kids. We'll be right back.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Later that year, Mikkel's father calls him with a surprise. A woman gets on the phone and says, Hi, son. Mikkel recognizes the voice. He recognizes being called son. This was someone he knew. This was Bonnie, a woman who had been his primary caretaker back at the Sinanon orphanage. In that otherwise Dickensian situation, Bonnie had shown Mikkel love. She would call him son, and he had thought of her as his mother, more than his actual mother. So when his dad calls and Bonnie is there with him, Mikkel is happy to hear her voice, but he's also very confused as to why she and his dad are together. It was wild. I mean, I first of all, the way she said, she said, son. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, son. And that happened a fair amount in Sinanon, where some, you know, one or another, the kids would become really close with one of the or another of the caretakers. Because he's just, you know, a bunch of little orphans performing for their dinner. You know, orphans are cute. They don't have anybody. And so they, they try to win people over to being their person. Uh, that's kind of a natural childish instinct. And, you know, we could get into the psychology of it and how damaging it all is. But, um, there's a reason we always end up as performers. But And I was close with her. And, yeah, so when my dad was like, someone here wants to talk to you, 
I just, I knew her as well as I knew, you know, my own voice. And it was Bonnie. And I was like, what the hell? So it turned out they had started dating and he had moved in with her in Los Angeles. After this phone call, Mikkel's father becomes more of a fixture in his and Tony's life. The boys begin to take trips to visit their dad and Bonnie in L.A., where their life drastically differs from their life back home in Salem, Oregon. I mean, it couldn't have been more different. I mean, part, part of the issue in Oregon was we just didn't have any food. My mom wasn't great at sort of material things, and the house was often kind of messy and dirty, and uh, we didn't have heat some nights in the winter, and we would have to chop the wood, and if we ran out of wood, um, there would just be no fire, no heat, and we'd be under blankets, and you could see your breath inside the house, and the house wasn't even insulated when we moved in, as I recall. And then we, you know, my mom's boyfriend, uh, this guy Paul, who was a great guy, but just an absolute drunk, um, <laughs> started raising rabbits for, for food, and that's what we ate. We ate rabbit meat. Paul, it's like a woodsman. But so he, yeah, he just, he sat us down. He's like, all right, we're going to teach you how to slaughter. And he, t- he taught us how to, the step-by-step process of slaughtering rabbits. You know, you would breed the rabbits and then a big bunch of litters would be born. And then you try to time them so they're all born around the same time. And then you let them grow to a certain age. And then it's slaughtering day. And then you slaughter all the rabbits. Then you keep them in the fridge. And then you live off those rabbits for however many months until the next round. And um, the, the rough parts were when he would disappear, he would go on one of these drinking binges and it would be like, there's no food to eat, and there was nothing to do but slaughter rabbits. And I would be like seven years old with a hunting knife, you know, cutting the heads off rabbits and pulling the skins off and doing all the things you do to field dress an animal. And I, don't, I have all these cuts, to this day, I have all these scars on my hand, on my left hand, from where I cut into it with the hunting knife because I just wasn't that adept at it. My, my mom, who's just, God bless her, not a very good cook, would try to make, the worst was like rabbit stew, and she just had no idea how to do it. And then the worst part was like night two of rabbit stew. There'd be like this gamey smell, this gamey smoky smell in the house, and it would have this like thin layer on top that you'd have to skim off, and then night three, and then night four, and we would just have to eat the stew until it was gone, because we were poor, we didn't have any other food. Sometimes I tell these stories, and like my wife will be like, were you born in the 20s? Like... What the hell was going on? Like, how is this something that happened, like, in the 80s? And then when we get to L.A., I mean, it was just, like, modern-day childhood. Like, (laughs) there were, you know, I don't know, microwave burritos, (laughs) you know, and uh, celery with peanut butter and, I don't know, salami, (laughs) ice cream after dinner every night. And then they would take us places on weekends. We'd go to Disneyland or go to some theme park or we'd always go on the weekends and play baseball with my, my dad and and then we were all together at night you know my dad would like to watch Dodger games or Laker games and he'd sit there and drink and smoke and just bitch about the Dodgers and we'd sit there and bitch too like and we didn't know what we were talking about again we we're just kind of making it up but it was just like there was this abundance there's this sense of sort of joy and wonder and this feeling like we were safe we weren't just in the middle of somebody else's crisis but we were just kind of taken care of and it was fine but things continue to be not fine back in Oregon. Mikkel and his brother continue to be hungry. Their mom continues to be depressed. Paul continues to disappear. The boys are going to school, to a real regular school for the first time, but they feel generally disconnected from their classmates who have no idea what they're going through at home. We'd go from these incredibly emotionally tense situations and then to go to school and just be expected to do math was weird. And then also just being hungry. 
um, which I think a lot of kids, unfortunately, in the modern world can relate to trying to go to school while hungry. We definitely were hungry at school. Hearing about how my peers went through their lives, I, I guess it was different because my days were just different from theirs. But at the time, I don't know, I think we just thought, I just knew there was this sad woman, it was my job to take care of her, and because she always told me that was my job, a boy's job is to take care of her mother. And My brother was just angry. He was one of these like kind of lost kids that hated all adults, and probably for good reason, because he had been you know, hurt by a lot of adults. And I was a very capable kid, I guess, and took on the role of a super child. You know, different families under stress take on these predictable roles, and there's like the scapegoat child and the super child and the mascot child or whatever, and I was just the one that was trying to, I would chop the wood in the back and slaughter the rabbits and try to get my mom, you know, feeling okay about her life and then fill in for whatever my stepdad wasn't doing and then try to calm my brother down so he wasn't too pissed to go to school. and just try to take it all on to make sure everyone was was okay, which in retrospect, probably my brother's way of handling it might have been more healthy. <laughs> he was just understandably pissed. In addition to all this stuff, there was this kind of sense that my mom knew our lives better than we did and would tell us. And I would say something like, Mom, I'm sad. And she'd say, no, you're not. You're happy. You're with your mother. Uh, and this happened with when the men from Synanon came and beat Philip. And I had nightmares. I wet the bed after that, as kids often do after traumatic experiences, and um, had a bunch of nightmares. And at every sign in the modern world, you'd be like, this kid has PTSD. Like, I know it now. At the time, we never saw a counselor. I didn't, no one ever thought, like, how, what our experience was like. We were just kind of these ancillary things to our parents' stories, really. That's how it felt. And, you know, when, when, Phil got beat up, I, I, and I would tell her I was scared because the bad men were going to come, and she would say, well, you weren't even there. And I'd say, yeah, I, I was there. I watched from the porch. She screamed. We caught eyes. We, I, it was, I was in. She'd say, no, you weren't. And it was almost like she couldn't, she couldn't piece it together. Um, and I didn't know what to do with this as a kid. There was like mom's reality, and there was reality, and then there was Synanon's reality, then there was the reality of the world. And I was like this precocious kid just being told by her constantly what reality was, and it didn't match my experience. But I knew enough to tell her she was right. Because you, you needed to do that to survive. I had to have a caretaker, right. Yeah, I was a kid. Kids are trying to get their needs met. You know, we have the emotional makeup of orphans, and we certainly lived that way for our first five years. And so it's like, you just learn to perform. You're just, you're not enough. Nothing you do is enough. You're not loved because you're loved. You're loved because you're special in some way, and you have to prove constantly that you're special to everyone because that's what you're taught at a young age is the only way you're ever going to get any of your needs met. And 100% that's how I responded to her. As Mikkel's sense of reality is constantly being questioned by his mom, there's also the ongoing drama of his mom's relationship with Paul. Paul goes out on benders. Then they break up. Then they get back together over and over again. They get married and this rhythm continues. And somehow lending a fragile sense of support to all this is the language of 12-step recovery. The serenity prayer is on the wall. Phrases like, let go and let God, are in regular rotation. Mikkel absorbs some of this and even tries comforting his mother by saying things like, it's the disease talking, or one day at a time. Then Paul disappears. And this time, he doesn't return. Mikkel's mother informs him in a very matter-of-fact, almost casual way, that Paul has died. But then she backpedals and says she thinks Paul is dead. This is extremely sad and perplexing to Mikkel. Not only the news of the loss, 
but the mixed messages and the manner in which the news is delivered. She just kind of mentioned in passing, like, he's dead. And I was like, what? Wait, can we pause? And then it was like, pass the potatoes. Like, it was just like the next line. You know, there was no, there was no acknowledgement. There was no like, are we going to grieve him somehow? Are we going to have this be a sit down? Is this going to at least be a big talk? It wasn't even that. It was just this passing thing. And then when I was like, well, should we go look for him? Should we find it? Because she had said he disappeared while drinking and everyone thinks he's probably dead or maybe he isn't. You know, she backtracked a little and made it kind of vague. And I was just like, let's go figure this out. This is my guy. You know, we got to, we got to find him. And she said, why? You guys were never close. And it was like she just invented wholesale this new reality on the spot, on the spot. And it was so confusing because I knew in my heart, like I was crushed by this news and I was so sad. Paul was just, uh, he'd watch cartoons with us and he'd take us fishing and he'd make jokes with us. And he would talk to me about problems. Um, You know, if I got in a fight with a friend, he'd say, well, there's your buddy and you got to resolve it in this way. And And he listened to us, you know, and my mom, despite all of her very, very intelligent women and thousands of books about psychology and whatnot. I mean, we never got a bedtime story once ever in our lives. We never had any sense that our sort of day had any kind of schedule to it. There was no rhythm. There was no boundaries. There was no, you know, all the things that in the modern world we say, like, this is what constitutes good parenting, right? Uh, and he actually had some of that stuff down. He was empathetic and he listened. He was warm and he was just broken guy, but he just loved us and he was good with us in that way. He just kind of like as a, I almost saw him as like a really nice, older brother or uncle or something. I don't know if I ever saw him particularly as a father, but I definitely loved him. I would find myself wanting to go down to the banks over the West Salem Bridge, over the Willamette River, because that's where he would take us fishing. And I'd go looking for him because I knew he'd go drinking down there sometimes. I never found him. You know, he was just gone. I never, I never saw him again. And he's a guy I'd live with us and I'd seen him, you know, every day since I was six years old when I was in Oregon. And then one day he's just gone and that was that. By the time Mikkel is 11, He's living alone with his mom. Of course, Paul is gone, and now his brother Tony is gone too. Tony's anger has spiraled out of control, and he's become unruly, so the family decides his father might be able to straighten him out in L.A. This leaves Mikkel to do what he's always done, but on hyperdrive. He is, for better or worse, the proverbial man of the house. After all, he's been told again and again that a boy's job is to take care of his mother. You know, and I did three hours of chores before school, two hours of chores after school every day, taking care of rabbits and chopping wood and taking care of the house in all these different ways. In some ways, it probably taught me a work ethic that has served me really well. Um, In other ways, it was probably a little much. Then your mother starts dating again, and um, this man named Doug enters the picture. Doug was no Paul. Like, Paul was funny. He watched cartoons in his underwear and was just this, like, weird dude that we could get down with. And my dad, hilarious, you know, had done time in prison, you know, uh, ex-heroin addict, charismatic as all shit. And he was, he was he was clean and sober, you know, for the most part at that point and a, and a really good guy and a good dad. But he had soul, you know what I mean? He liked music and he liked and he could like people from all walks of life. And then walks this guy, Doug, who's just like, wow, your mother and I are having a very important talk with you now. We want to have this talk with you that to make sure that you understand the rules in this house. And I was like, who the fuck is this dude? <laughs> who's this guy that suddenly shows up in my house and is telling me how to live and uh, what to do? And, and he was weird. He was like a really odd cadence to his speech. He always wanted you to kind of like agree with him. He'd take these pauses, these really long pauses as he answered 
questions for you like and then he'd say trust and he and then he'd go off on some other tangent and you know he'd, he'd go to a restaurant and order like oatmeal with raisins it was just weird like and then he was also just abusive he was just um he would he would like disappear my mom would come home and he'd just he'd be gone he like moved out all of his stuff like he'd move in and then he'd move out and then he moved in he moved in and moved out like four different times um in the span of i want to say like a year and a half and it was just all very confusing and, and strange there'd been a while where he you know he he always wanted to make sure i knew he was bigger than me and he would you know hit my dog i remember him like my dog pooped on the stairs or something we had this dog this great labrador that we named mork and we never hit the dog. We just kind of told him to stop pooping places or whatever. Um, he'd tower over me when I would talk back to my mom, sort of like trying to physically intimidate me. And also they just didn't care about my life. Like I was going to school and doing all these chores and working and stuff. And then uh, I was on the relay team of the track team for my elementary school at a little relay thing. And they never came to anything. They just kind of had their own lives. And it was like they were just kind of checked out. And then one day my mom says something about sports and I was like, sports are cool, mom. And she's like, no, they're not. It's just, you know, alpha males trying to prove how alpha they are. And I was like, no, they're not. That's stupid. It's how hard you work and it's camaraderie and it's, I like sports, mom. And then she said something and I was, I think I called her a bitch. I was like, don't be a bitch or something. And then he like got up and he was really mad. Like, don't you call your mother a bitch. And uh, he pinned me down and just like knocked me one across the mouth. It never had anything like that happen to me. And he put his finger in my face and, he, and I can remember like literally the spit in his mouth as he's like, don't you ever touch your mother that way? Not in my house or something like that. And it was all this kind of like control stuff. Like he was the man, I was supposed to listen to him. And I was like, asshole, you moved out four times. Like what am I'm supposed to listen to you? Of course, my reaction, I think he thought I would sort of cower away and be intimidated by him or something. And instead I just like stood up and I was like, my dad's gonna beat the shit out of you. <laughs> like I was so mad and just so certain that like this guy wasn't worth um wasn't worth anything and just trifling so i got on my bike and i um ran away it was like uh nighttime and i just went and stood on the on the bridge over the willamette river and i just felt such a sense of aloneness and i went down to the banks and i was looking for my stepdad who'd been dead and wish i could call or talk to or be around my, my dad and, and Bonnie and you know it just felt like um, I just had no people you know that feeling like there's just no one in the world that gives a shit um, about me at all and, and Sinanon you know was bad in its own way and then in a lot of ways this was worse my story has a, like a lot of you know there's prison and drug addicts and people dying and all these and there's a cult and there's all this stuff that's really you know, kind of like sounds really sexy and big, but really like what's hard about being a kid is being alone. And that's that's true for a lot of kids to just feel like you don't have people that are that are on your side. You know, he eventually apologized, but I, I at that point I was just over it. You know, I was just couldn't, didn't want to be around. So then I went to Los Angeles for the summer and at the end of the summer, got to talking with them about staying and going to school. Um, we had sort of made the decision my dad and Bonnie and I that I was going to stay there uh, and that we had to go and call my mom. It was like I knew I was breaking a rule. I knew that telling her that I'm going to go live in this other place went, was an absolute apostasy that went against everything I was ever ever been told about what I was supposed to do with my life, which was to take care of her. And it's almost like I surprised her. And again, these things were never said out loud. Um, it was just kind of something I knew. And she basically said to you, one year. 
Yeah, it was one year. I think the rationale was I needed, I was becoming an, a, a teenager and I needed to get to know my dad. And so we were going to spend one year in Los Angeles, you know, getting to know my dad. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real, live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Eh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today. Mikkel starts a new life in a new school. He's a talented runner, and he gets on the track team. He's at a true inflection point, one of those moments in life where things can go in any number of different directions. His time with his dad is vitally important to him. He's a Jolay man, part of a lineage of Jolay men, and he's trying to figure out for himself what this means. My dad was big on betting the ponies, and he liked to take us to Hollywood Park. Uh, I learned fractions at Hollywood Park by learning betting odds <laughs> at a young age. And so we would go there sometimes and have these big talks, and I'd fallen in with these kids, and we were sneaking out at night and doing drugs and drinking and ditching school, and I was getting really bad grades, and... My brother had uh, was doing, at this point already, cocaine, PCP, acid. He was drinking every single night. And um, he, a bunch of stuff had gone down with him where he'd been arrested and cops were after him and he left the house and then found out he'd missed school for six months straight. And eventually he got shipped off to rehab. And it all kind of scared me. 
and I didn't want to go down that path. And I saw that my brother was going down this path and I was, I was done going down that path. I was part of this little, you know, skate gang, <laughs> you know, we'd hit up on walls and egg buses and just be little shitty skaters that weren't really going anywhere, just kind of burnouts that we thought we were cool. Um, but we knew we weren't really going anywhere. And that was kind of the point. And I saw this thing happen to my, my brother and I was just like, I want out of this. And I didn't know what to do. So my dad took me to Hollywood Park and we're sitting up in the stands and I told him all about it. And I was like, Dad, I just want to get out of this. I don't know what to do. And he turned to me and he was just like, you know, you're a smart kid. You don't you don't have to do any of this stuff that I did. Like he, he would tell these charming stories about prison, you know, that were kind of funny. He was never shy about it. But he kind of leveled with me and he was like, listen, I tell you all these stories are kind of funny, but it's terrible. Being an addict is terrible. Going to jail is terrible. Like, I wish I could have done what you have the opportunity to do. I wish I had your chance. And he said, don't do what I did. Go do something better. Go make something of your life. You're a smart kid and you can go do anything you want. And I, I wish I wish somebody had told me that at your age. But, you know, he, he never knew his dad. Uh, he's like, there just wasn't anyone to tell me. I mean, I guess he knew him, but didn't know him well. So I, I took it to heart and, um, you know, Bonnie was involved in this as well. And I just started trying in school. It was weird. Like I'd never tried before. <laughs> and I just started trying. And lo and behold, I was good at it. And I liked it. Like, I literally didn't know what it meant to study. No one told me what, how to study. No one pulled me aside and was like, read your book and take notes on it. What does that even mean? I don't know. Someone taught me how to do it one day. I was like, oh, so just this and memorize these facts? Like, yeah. So I started doing that and found out I, I really took to it. It was something I really enjoyed and I was good at it. And it, it was, I was surprised. It was like the biggest shock of my life <laughs> to realize that I liked school. Mikkel is so good in school that he's accepted to Stanford University, one of the best institutions of higher learning in the country. It's a beautiful campus, a place of privilege and opportunity. But Mikhail doesn't feel exactly at home there. He's on scholarship, and while he's no longer the child skinning rabbits in the backyard, he knows he was that child and knows that his classmates were not. Those familiar feelings of aloneness and detachment creep back in. I think I didn't feel it as much in high school, this sense of alienation I felt in college, because I went to this LA public school, um, and a lot of the kids that I was really good friends with, they were trying to do what I was trying to do. They were trying to get out, you know? And there was, you know, we certainly had different experiences because of race, and like, you know, I, I have white privilege, had white privilege, still have it, that they didn't have and all that. But in, in so far as like a dad who'd been in prison, no one ever made it past eighth grade, let's study hard and get the fuck out of this place. That was, that was a shared feeling among a lot of my peers, most of whom were black. And there was a lot of white kids too, but they, they kind of had a more suburban experience at the school, I would say. And so getting to college, it was wild because I think I was just, I'd never been around like rich people. I remember there was like orientation week and there was like the Black Student Union lunch and the Native American lunch and the Mecha lunch and the Asian Pacific Islander lunch. And then there was just lunch. <laughs> And like, I just went to lunch and like lunch may have been called like white lunch. So I went to white lunch and cause that's all, all that was left. And I'd sit like across from a kid from like New Hampshire prep school in like a game hat and just had like nothing in common with these kids. What was bizarre to me was I think in their eyes, I, I came up lacking that like, I didn't know the language. And some of it was, as I later learned, was kind of like the language of wealth. I was like, why aren't my jokes landing? And I think they kind of looked down on me a little bit. You also learned to leave really significant parts of your 
history and your story and your family out. Yeah, and for many years at that point, stopped telling any of the stories about Sinanon um, and any stories about my early childhood. And because you just, you get sick of like people looking at you funny. You know, I still don't like it. Um, I still don't love being introduced, even like if I'm doing a piece of media or something and someone's like, well, Mikhail Jolet was born in a cult called Sinanon. And I want to be like, that was my parents' decision. <laughs> I feel immediately kind of defensive. Like, I don't want to be branded as some like, someone who's had some like, experience that nobody can relate to and therefore I'm going to be strange and broken in some way which ultimately I probably am strange and broken in some ways but just maybe not in the ways people expect you know and I've spent a lot of years trying to not be strange and broken and trying to have more empathy I mean in some ways I think these really hard things that happen to you they sort of like create a crack uh, where you're able to have more empathy than others and maybe see things others can't because you've just been through some really really awful shit and especially as an artist, it creates an empathy and an eye and an ability to connect that maybe other people don't have. But, you know, at 19 years old at Stanford University, I didn't understand any of that. I just felt alienated and I knew I was not bringing up, you know, the cult I was born in. I knew I wasn't bringing up my dad who'd been in prison. I knew I wasn't bringing up like my mentally ill mom or my stepfather had died or people had been beaten in front of me or my drug addict brother, any of that stuff. I just knew you know, stick to like, you know, what your college essay was about and what are you majoring in and what bands do you like and, you know, what sports do you like, whatever. Just, and eventually learn to just create a, a very highly curated mask uh, for the world. We've all learned to do that to some extent. Uh, and I think for me at that point, that was, I was too scared to show any other part of who I was to the world. As Mikkel navigates his way through college, he takes psychology courses, which end up educating and even enlightening him about his own life. In one of his textbooks, he comes across Synanon. Up until this point, he hadn't understood that this cult was famous. He recognizes his mother in some of the psychology books, too. He'd always known she struggled with her mental health, but it isn't until now that he realizes the scope of it all. She's not just a troubled woman with a tenuous grasp on reality. No, she has what's called NPD and BPD, narcissistic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder, very real afflictions that are difficult to treat and have led her to behave in the ways she has. She has, of course, left her mark upon Mikkel, a ripple effect of their shared history. Mikkel suffers from an inability to connect with others, to really let them in. That's when he discovers that he has a disorder of his own, attachment disorder. Unlocking this language and knowledge is pivotal in Mikkel's journey toward understanding his relationship with his mother and with himself. I think part of the problem, I think, is that we don't really as society have a language for narcissistic personality disorder. Like we have language for depression and schizophrenia and addiction and anxiety and ADHD. Um, and we're just now starting, like in the last few years, uh, to have a language around NPD and borderline personality disorder, which are closely related. And they're fairly common and they create relationships without love, without empathy, but they, we don't really talk about it. And I, so I didn't really understand what it was. All I knew was my mother constantly crossed boundaries. I knew she had a difficult grasp on reality. I knew I was uncomfortable in her presence. 
um, which was enough for me to kind of cut off contact with her uh, around like 19, 20 years old. I stopped uh, talking to her because I was just suddenly so mad at her. And I couldn't even explain, I couldn't even tell you why at the time that happened. And I went to visit her at this treatment center where she had checked herself into and someone had mentioned uh, emotional abuse and the emotional abuse of children. And I realized that they were talking about her and how she treated us. And it just kind of hit me so hard that this was true. And I was so incredibly angry about it. You know, and then over time, you sustain these wounds yourself. You realize eventually that you whatever damage was done to you as a kid it's if you want to live your own life you have to try to fix it yourself right it's even if it's not your fault it's your responsibility i guess um and so you know i noticed as i got older i was having a real hard time uh with relationships um that i just i just couldn't i you know things would fizzle out or i would always have like one foot out the door and i was noticing friends you know as i got older like getting married and moving on and a lot of stories, you know, people who write about their lives end with like, and then it all worked out. And I really wanted to get into like, here's the wreckage. I really wanted to speak honestly about the wreckage um, in, in my life. And the wreckage was, I knew I had an attachment disorder. I knew it was because I'd been an orphan. And I knew it took a really long time to get out of that. And I knew my mother was mentally ill. Um, and of all the things that I, to talk about publicly, that's probably the hardest one. Being born in a cult, all right, you feel a little weird, but it's still kind of like, whoa, what happened there? The alcoholism or the drug addiction that runs in my family, being able to really not be part of that, that's almost a credit to me. There's this other feeling talking about, wow, I couldn't really be in a relationship that feels more like shame, embarrassment, maybe like fear that something's fundamentally wrong with me, that it took me a long time to really come to terms with, to feel like, you know, not so defensive about because you feel like you have to guard it the way like a boxer will guard a broken rib in a fight or something like this is your vulnerability point. But like what I know now, you know, having gone through work with like a really good therapist five years on the couch twice a week, <laughs> we, we got through all this stuff and spent a lot of time kind of leaning into the discomfort is that you just kind of have to go into that discomfort and you have to learn to be okay with it. And then it starts to not have so much control over you and you very slowly start to learn how to make new choices and to see situations in different ways and eventually get to the other side of it um, and feel like you're a person who can love and be loved and have a real relationship in your life. And it's ironic because it's like the thing you don't want to do is acknowledge that you're sort of fundamentally flawed in some way and you feel defensive about it and defensive and like you don't want to talk about it or think about it. But it's that very thing that you don't want to talk about that is the key to having it not control your life. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, that's, that's so exactly right. One of the most moving and triumphant parts of Mikkel's story is that he has become a person who can have real and loving relationships. He's happily married. He's a dad to two kids. He has a robust career as a musician and writer, which allows so many to love and celebrate him too. I've been with my wife uh, 10 years next year and we have two beautiful children who I love more than life itself <laughs> and I'm really happy to say we have a happy little little house a happy little home um, I'm my first job in the world is to be a husband and father and I take that job very seriously it's also my favorite job um, and kind of everything starts from there these days uh, for me 
uh, that that's that's always my first priority. The primary in my mind is making sure that the, we're our relationships are strong and our kids are taken care of. And when my son was born, I remember at six months old thinking like, wow, this is the age we were given to strangers. And it's like it didn't quite cross my mind as a kid how monstrous that was. I didn't know. But as a parent, I just was appalled by like this horrific thing that so I'm going to take this child that all I think about is how he's not going to I don't want him to bump his head you know I don't want him to grab a knife I don't want him to fall over I, you know I just want to protect him and love him make sure he's safe and we're going to give him to a stranger now and I'm not going to see him for years and I'm not going to know who he's with and what he's doing like I can't imagine doing that for an afternoon let alone for weeks months years at a time and so it occurred to me like the real violence of Synanon, there was some violent acts, but you know, as cults go, it wasn't like Waco or something. It wasn't, you know, Branch Davidians, it wasn't People's Temple. There's some very violent cults out there where people fully died. That didn't really happen in Synanon's case. It was like an emotional violence. And I would say the victims, the prime victims of that emotional violence uh, were the children. Um, and it's sort of like the big ugly secret of Synanon is that the children were all turned into these people with these attachment disorders and murky relationships um, and a lifetime of trying to figure out why they feel so alienated from the world. And then in my career, um, yeah, so um, a writer, um, I was on NPR for a while. I was uh, editor of a music magazine called Filters, editor at large of uh, Men's Health Magazine. I met a drummer and I decided to start a rock band. <laughs> You know, music was a big part of my life growing up and making me feel like the weirdness and alienation I felt wasn't something that only I felt. And I'd spent a lot of time listening to things like The Cure and uh, The Smiths and feeling like there were other people out there who had gone through similar journeys and that meant everything to me at that age. And I grew up with that feeling uh, relating to music so hard. And then eventually was writing songs in my spare time and then eventually decided I wanted to make it my purpose in life to be a songwriter and document my journey through the world and a spiritual, emotional, psychological journey through the world through songs. Uh, so I've been doing that with the band for about uh, 15 years and it's been, it's been wicked fun. <laughs> it's been great uh, touring the world and playing big concerts and having these big uh, overwhelming celebrations, which is what a concert is um, all the time. Here's Mikkel reading one last passage from his powerful memoir, Hollywood Park. Eventually, the landscape begins to make sense, and I learn where the pitfalls are. Here's a mountain of fear. Over there is a river of regret. Down there is a swamp of shame. Next to it, a meadow of hope. Travel with care. It takes time, but I learn to laugh at myself, to tolerate discomfort, to accept these things that were once so hard to accept. It's not easy. I get depressed. I get anxious about it. I learned to just sit with it. That the thing dad always told me about acceptance and heartache was true. Sometimes you just have to sit on your hands and hurt. What can I say? It was uncomfortable and it took years. And it was the only way to change. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-ZERO. 
That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. At-